now, evangelism, of course, is an art, and it's a somewhat delicate art. But it's not an art that's so esoteric that we shouldn't all attempt it. Uh, it's something that we should all. It's it's within all of our purview. Uh, we have to know what we're talking about. There, if there are things that we don't know about, we shouldn't guess. Uh, there are virtues to acquire, the virtues to practice uh, in order to evangelize properly. But let me now um, transition, if you would pardon my use of that word, uh, to an, the article by Phil Lawler that I mentioned at the beginning. It's short. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a great little commentary. His, uh, his headline is, Please, Not Another Program for evangeliz- Evangelization. At his Wednesday public audience this week, Pope Francis compared Vatican II with the First Council of the Church, the Council of Jerusalem. Of course, this council was not an ecumenical council, but still it was the First Council. Both councils, the Pope remarked, issued a call to evangelize the world. Yes, but there is also a marked difference between the results of the two councils. After the Council of Jerusalem, the apostles quickly spread the gospel message across the world. After Vatican II, the church talked about evangelization. Does that seem harsh? Look at the circumstances facing the church during and immediately after the two councils and compare the concrete results. Apart from the gospel message and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the disciples who fanned out from Jerusalem had very little working in their favor, practically speaking. They were not educated. They were not trained in public relations. Travel was slow and sometimes dangerous. Communication could be done only face-to-face or by letters that might take weeks to arrive. The earliest missionaries worked in societies that clung to their pagan religions. They often faced open persecution. Nevertheless, during the lifetime of the original apostles, the Christian faith spread across thousands of miles, all along the coasts of the Mediterranean and beyond, from India to Spain, and from Ethiopia to what is now Germany. And I could add to that, according to certain, well, Ethiopian uh, writings, um, St. Thomas made it as far as China. Now consider the resources that have been available to Christian evangelists since the time of Vatican II. Increasingly fast and easy international travel, instant global communication, and more recently the internet. The church owns and operates thousands of schools. Graduate programs offer professional training for priests and religious theologians and apologists. In the Western world, at the time of the council, most governments were friendly to the Christian message, if not openly supportive. And yet, in the years since the council, the influence of the church has shrunk most dramatically in the societies where it has been, had been the strongest. Perhaps we should notice in passing that the regions where the church has experienced significant growth in the past decades have been areas where the prospects for evangelization did not look so promising in the 1960s. In many parts of Africa, it was and still is dangerous to be a Christian, yet the faith has grown fastest on that continent. In Asian countries, the church grew despite government oppression. Meanwhile, in the affluent West, in what was once known as Christendom, open hostility to Christian beliefs has become fashionable. On the day before the Pope compared the two councils, the British Parliament passed legislation that makes prayer, e- excuse me, even silent prayer, illegal under certain circumstances. 
The nation that gave us George Orwell has now produced the first law against thought crime. True, the new British law applies only in the vicinity of abortion clinics. But do you doubt that the no-prayer zones will be expanded? If prayer at an abortion clinic is condemned as a form of intimidation, the same logic can easily be applied to silent prayer in the workplace, on the city streets, and certainly in the schools, where students may be trained to regard Christianity as dangerously subversive. By the way, secular zealots are right to regard Christian prayer as dangerous to their cause. If only we used our most powerful weapon more effectively. But I digress. My point is that despite the undoubted encouragement of Vatican II, the cause of evangelization has not prospered. Quite the contrary. What have we been doing wrong? Since the Council, the Church has poured enormous resources into programs for evangelization. Catholic colleges and universities, and more recently, standalone institutions, have churned out graduates with appropriate professional credentials. Publishers have produced texts and workbooks and videos and apps. Entire new categories have appeared on the Catholic scene, devoted to spreading the gospel message. The Diocesan Office of Evangelization, the Professional Apologist. It's not working. Because evangelization is not a program, evangelization is a way of life. And yes, ding, 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 I stole that from him for the title of this program. Evangelization is not a program, evangelization is a way of life. What we need to spread the gospel is not more professional advice, not more material resources, and especially not more centralized planning. We need more zeal for the gospel. Last year, the American bishops embarked on a program to restore reverence for the Eucharist. The goal is commendable, but the program is, I'm afraid, doomed to fail. Scholarly conferences and video presentations and special events will not revive reverence as long as ordinary Catholic parishes are satisfied with mediocrity or worse in the Eucharistic liturgy. Lukewarm Catholics will not be inspired with awe at the great gift of the Blessed Sacrament as long as prelates offer that inestimable gift even to Catholics who despise the teachings of the Church. Reverence is not the result of a program. Reverence, too, is a way of life. When Catholics live the faith and make sacrifices for the faith and show that their lives have changed because of the faith, then they become effective evangelists. We teach the gospel when we live the gospel. So, bravo, Phil Lawler. Uh, you're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre, and this is episode number 367, Evangelism is Not a Program, But a Way of Life. Now, I would like to um, give some further thoughts on sort of the, the hows of evangelization, uh, perhaps I should begin with the why, though, of evangelization. I read an article today on the website of Catholic Answers, and I'm, I think I'll go ahead and link to it from the show details page for this episode on Reconquest.net, only because it does have some useful thoughts in it. Uh, but uh, there's a section in it that I thought was very, very weak. It's getting into the reasons why Catholics don't evangelize, and it gives some good reasons. You know, well, that's for the priests. Um, you know, I, that kind of thing isn't for me. I'm just a layman. Um, I don't know enough. Um, 
and several other things. But one of them is it doesn't really matter what religion you belong to. And for a few paragraphs, Catholic Answers sounds anti-indifferentism, anti-indifferentist, and say, well, actually, it really does matter what religion you belong to. It really, really does. It's that one religion isn't as good as another. Of course, this is an organization that has written numerous articles against the Fenians and saying that, uh, you know, no salvation inside the church isn't, you know, it's not all that, you know, literal. Um, so there's a there's an obvious weakness there. But when they're telling people that they need to evangelize, officially they have to sound anti-indifferentist because, after all, the logic is if you can be saved in any religion, well, why the hell evangelize? Um, it, there's no point. There's zero point in evangelizing if you can be saved in any religion and if somebody who is blissfully ignorant and his fake religion can can um, live a happy life on this earth without being having his conscience disturbed that what he believes is wrong and how he lives is wrong, then uh, and and still go to heaven, then you know we're sort of monstrous for disturbing his conscience, aren't we? Um, this is one of the arguments that Father Feeney and the early uh, members of St. Benedict's Center made. So, um, you know, obviously, when you believe no salvation outside the church, the point is not to be Mr. Obnoxious and go around telling everybody who's going to hell um, because you don't know who's going to hell. It's not your purview. That's the purview of God Almighty, and you're not him. Um, so we have to be careful and not be stupid about these things. It's a matter of simply knowing what you're doing and uh, practicing the proper virtues. Uh, there is no Christian virtue that says go out and judge people and tell everybody who's going to hell. Obviously, there's some measure of judgment implied to, you know, um, instructing the ignorant or, you know, counseling the doubtful or admonishing the sinner. Some some measure of judgment is required there, but not saying, yeah, this guy's going to hell. Now, if you continue to do this, this will lead you to hell. That's, that's perfectly reasonable. Um, but as I say, it's an art. And Father Feeney himself thought that it was an art. And he would uh, be very, at times, delicate with people. He'd always try to get them to pray the Hail Mary with him. And when he did that, frequently, when they, when, when they finally capitulated, that was a sign that they were on their way. And, you know, he converted a lot of people by seemingly superficial encounters, but a, uh, a numerous succession of such encounters with the same person.